Revelation chapter 11. We'll read from verse 1 to 3 this morning. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel said, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, sack, uh, clothed in sackcloth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious time. We can come together and, and learn from your word. We thank you for this time we've already had to be able to sing songs to you. Lord, that remind us of your precious love for us. To remind us, to remind us of the sweet salvation that we have and the hope that we have, Lord. And we look forward to the day when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll and our Lord shall descend for us. Lord, I ask that you bless us now, that you bless me, the speaker, Lord, and that you, uh, your spirit would superintend this service, that it may be our teacher and our guide. We ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love those last two hymns that we sang this morning. Burdens are lifted and it is well with my soul. It's the very encouraging uh, words. And Jesus is very near. Those are the sorts of things that, that, that Christians can, can cling to. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. There's a lot of fear in the world at the moment. There's always been fear in the world, isn't there? Isn't there? The fear of the unknown, the fear of, of uh, a climate change. There's fear of financial systems collapsing and and fears about weather and destruction, fears about terrorism and fears about all different types of things. And mostly the fear comes from the unknown because they don't know what's going to happen. It could be bad, it may not be bad, but the fear is inherent because of there's a great amount of unknown. And no one's really looking out for me. I have to look out for myself and my family and we have to do the best to protect what we have. But the Christian has something much more precious than that. The Christian not only knows the end, which is what we're looking at today and what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, but the Christian has someone who is very near. The Christian has someone who is on his or her side. We have a salvation that secures our destiny. If you go through difficult times in your life because you're working towards something and you know, let's say you know in a year's time, I mean all those students out there and some who are going to be prospect, uh, prospective students, go through uh, years of study and sometimes it's pretty, pretty hard and difficult to get through those studies but you do it knowing that at the end of the studies there is something to be gained, correct? And that's a motivating factor isn't it? It motivates you to continue. Even though it may be difficult, it motivates you to push yourself harder because you know at the end of it, you'll receive a degree or diploma or whatever else it may be, which then sets you up to do your desired career. But imagine if you had to study with no end in sight, with nothing at the end of it, would you study? How many people would continue to, to study without knowing they were going to receive something at the end, some sort of reward. Well, that's what it's like in life generally. 
If you know at the end, you're going to receive something for your labours, for the trouble you're going through. It motivates you to keep on going. The Christian has an amazing motivation because at the end of their life, it doesn't matter how hard our lives are now, we know we have a salvation that's secure. It's been purchased with Jesus' blood. So if you're saved this morning, you have a wonderful hope. Something that can't be taken away from you. And doesn't matter how many trials and tribulations, and though, as the, as the hymn says, though Satan should buffet, you know what's going to happen. You know that at the end of your life, or possibly before we, we pass away, that you have a secured place for you. You have someone who loves you now, has paid the ultimate price for you, continues to love you and watch it over you, but also that one day we'll be with him. And there's no ifs, ands or buts about that because Jesus guarantees it. With that in mind, let's turn to Revelation chapter 11 as we continue our look at what's going to happen at the end, which is another wonderful thing that we have. We know what's going to happen at the end of this world, in the end times. And if, if you remember, the last uh, few weeks we've been looking at uh, chapter 10, where John gets visited by an angel. An angel comes down from heaven, a mighty angel, the Bible says, with legs like pillars of fire, and he stands on the, on the sea, on the land. And um, John has just finished having a light lunch. He ate the book, if you, uh, if you remember from last time, which was sweet in his mouth, but when it got into his stomach, it became bitter. Now, the scripture says in verse, uh, verse 1, and there was given me... So we continue with this. He's still in the presence of the angel. There's a continuation from that last thought. He's given a reed like a rod. And the angel uh, stood saying, Rise, get up, measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So he's given a, a, a reed, a measuring rod, to measure out the temple. There's another place in the Bible where a prophet was given a measuring rod to measure something out. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3. We'll just look at that just to compare. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3. And he brought me thither. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate. Now, there is another, that's the other place where a reed is used to measure something. It's amazing when you, when you study prophecy, when you study the prophecies in the Bible, how all these books actually build on each other. Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, Thessalonians, these books all lend to the same picture. They just give you different details and they build on each other. Now let's look at the let's think about the place where we are at the moment because I want this this is very important that we understand where we are. Where was John in chapter 10? Was he in heaven or on earth? He was on the earth. Do you remember the angel came down from heaven 
and John saw the angel come down from him. So John's location is on the earth. Now that's critical because what we're looking at is we need to determine where the temple is. In the, in the book of Revelation, there's a number of references to the temple of God. And some of these we know are in heaven because it says that in the temple of in heaven, the angels walk out with the different plagues or the different, different judgments that come upon, the, come upon the world. So we know in heaven. Do you remember the martyrs where they were? They were under the altar in heaven, not on earth, in heaven. But now John is asked to measure the temple. Now the question is, where? On the earth? Or in heaven and if we look at if we continue to 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 follow through the thought from chapter 10 it's evident that this temple that John's measuring is not in heaven it's on the earth and there's a number of reasons for that because if we look in chat in verse 2 it says but the court which is at without the temple leave out in other words that the court that's outside the temple leave it out and measure it not for it's given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot, underfoot 40 and 2 months. Well, if it's given to the Gentiles to tread, then it can't be in heaven. The Gentiles aren't in heaven treading down the temple. It's not given over to them. So this is the temple on the earth. Is there a temple there now? Is there a temple anywhere now? And the answer is no. There is no temple now. The whole reason, the whole reason that that there is a temple or there can be a temple on the earth is because Israel was re-established as a a nation in 1948. Without that event happening, without those circumstances being in place today, there can't be the possibility of building a temple. If the Jews weren't back in their own land, where would they build a temple? So the whole idea, the, the reason that this, all this is possible is because, Jesus, is because the, the, the Jews returned to their homeland in 1948. Now, if we link that together with a, a, a foundational verse for understanding the book of Revelation, which is a verse in Daniel, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So we understand this whole, this whole process. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Thousands of years ago, Daniel predicted, or was given to him as a prophecy, that the Jews would return to their homeland, the Antichrist would, come, would rise up, the temple will, will be rebuilt, and a covenant would be made so that sacrifices could be restarted there again. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, And he shall confirm the covenant. He, spoken about there, is the Antichrist. He shall confirm the covenant, which is an agreement, with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, which means he will stop it. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate okay what does all that mean do you remember the tribulation period is a period of how many years seven okay well he says 
at the beginning of that verse, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That week is a reference to this last seven years, which we call the tribulation period. There are seven days in a week. There are seven years in that tribulation period. Okay? So at the beginning of that tribulation period, the Antichrist makes an agreement. He makes a covenant with Israel that they can rebuild their temple and they can start their sacrifices again. And he is going to make a way so that all the trouble that we see in the Middle East now, you know, all that, the conflicts that we have and, and wars always taking place, he is going to make some sort of agreement that's going to look like it's going to, be, it's going to bring peace. And the Jews are going to be able to rebuild the temple that they, they are longing to build. At the moment, they can't do it. He is going to find a way for them to be able to rebuild that temple. But the problem is, it says, in the midst of the week, which means in the middle part of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. He reneges. Three and a half years into the agreement, he he does an, an about-face and he stops them from continuing the sacrifices. And we know what he does is he walks in and he says, I want you to stop your sacrifices because I'm God myself. At which point, everything goes haywire. Now, does anyone know why there's no sacrifices today? I mean, there are Jews, right? There are millions of Jews around the world. And where do they meet? They meet in synagogues. What do they do in synagogues? Do they sacrifice? No, they don't. They, they don't sacrifice in synagogues. The only place that the Jews believe that they can sacrifice is in the temple. At the moment, they're being held back from doing that because there is a mosque sitting right on top of, of where they, they hope to be able to rebuild their temple. Now, I don't know all the details about... You know, what agreement the Antichrist is going to come up with to help them build their temple or, or arrange they can build their temple, but we know that it's going to happen. So the Jews at the moment meet all around the world in places called synagogues, like churches. They're just simply places of assembly. They meet together, they read from the, from the Torah, the, from, the, uh, from the Bible, the Old Testament, and they pray, they have lessons. They, they've got preaching, a bit like uh, we do here as well. So... After three and a half years, the beast reneges on his promise and stops the sacrifice and sets himself up as God himself. And the temple is critical to the tribulation period. Remember I said to you the key to understanding revelation is Israel. Do you remember that, that God, when the church is raptured out of this world, that God starts with his program with the Jews again? He starts with the Jews again from the beginning of that tribulation period. And then what happens is they build their temple, they restart their, um, their sacrifices again, but then the Antichrist comes in and starts making all types of problems. So the, the temple is critical to this whole period. Now, how special is the temple to the Jews? If they build this thing, how special do you think it will be to them? It's going to be very special. I know there's a number of us that are, uh, that are looking at moving home um, and, and buying new homes and that sort of stuff there. Do you think there's any emotional attachment that we have to our own homes? There is, isn't there? When you move from a place that you've been living in, 
Some people don't have any attachment to their homes, by the way. No, <laughs> there are... If you've been living in your home, if you've grown up in a particular home, right, your whole life, and all your childhood memories are in that home, and there are all the, all the wonderful things you, you remembered you know, when you were a child with your family, to sell that home and to move to another home that may be easier for some and not, not as easy for others. Because people do attach memories, do attach emotion to their place where they live. People get attached to their cars, don't they? People get attached to their homes. Okay? I'm not saying it's, it's, it's every, across the board 100% like that, but if we've had good memories, I know that when we sell our home, and we know we're ready to, to move on, we're ready to sell our home, there are going to be some things that, that I'm going to have to leave behind. There are memories that we have. I mean, the photos of, all the photos of my daughter growing up were in that home. There are things that I've done in that home that Mary and I have done in that home in terms of you know, building and working and, and, and doing things that we're going to have to leave behind. And there are many good memories that we're going to leave behind. So we have an, an attachment to the, to the home. The Jews are going to have a special attachment to their temple. And it's going to be much stronger than the attachment that a, an average person has for their home. And the reason that the Jews are going to be able to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem is because a war broke out in 1967. You see, when Israel started in 1948, Jerusalem was not on their map. Jerusalem was not under their control. It only happened because of a war where they fought against four or five other countries and they beat them silly. And it was at that stage, 1967, that they, for the first time, took control of Jerusalem again. And they've got control of Jerusalem at this point. Does anyone remember, does anyone remember what happened? Did anyone see any photographs of, of the soldiers when they walked into Jerusalem and they, they, they came to the Wailing Wall? What was, what was, what was the, the, the reaction that they had? They cried. They cried. They wailed. They cried when they got back to the, to, the, to the Western, what they call the Western Wall, and some people call the Wailing Wall. They broke down and cried because after thousands of years, they were in control once again of something remotely close to the temple they used to have. And this wall that they call the, the Western Wall is only the outside wall of a court that was outside the temple. But it's the last thing left standing. And for them, it's an incredibly special place. The Western Wall. And the reason there's only a wall left over there is because in 70 AD, the Romans went in because the Jews were, were revolting. Do you remember? In Jesus' days, the Romans were in control. The Jews wanted to revolt and win back, or certain Jews revolted and wanted to win back their independence, so they were in control of their own, their own land again. The Romans came in and levelled the whole temple. From 70 AD, there has been no temple. And... That is what the Bible calls the period of the Gentiles. Because from that point, okay, the, the Gentiles have been in full control of that, of that area. 
Actually, I'm not sure about that, but they've been in control of that area from 70 AD. The wall is the only remaining structure of the ancient temple of Jerusalem. Inside the courtyard, King Solomon's glorious temple once stood. And it's Jerusalem's, or it's, is, it's the Jews' most holy site because for them, and they pray there, because for them, it's the closest point to the Holy of Holies, the central part of the temple. It's the closest point to that place where God's presence used to be, where they used to have the Ark of the Covenant there, and once a year the high priest used to go in, used to sacrifice, pour the blood over, the, over that Ark, and, and the, the sins of the people were, were paid for. It's the closest thing to them to what they had. The emotional attachment they will have when they rebuild this thing is going to be absolutely enormous. They have history there. They have records of their of their having been or their having had a temple before in the Bible. God's very presence for them was in that place. And God showed himself in that place. So what their hope is, is that they're going to be able to rebuild this thing and God's presence is one day again going to be able to inhabit that particular building. Now, John is told to go and measure this particular temple. Now, he's measuring something that's in the future still. Okay? He hasn't measured, he's not measuring something that was there already. He's measuring something that is in the future. How does he measure the temple? How was he asked to measure this temple? With a reed. Okay, he's, he's, he's asked to measure it with a reed that's made like a rod. During the first century, distances were frequently measured with rods cut to specific lengths. The rods were light and they were made of reeds, something a bit like bamboo that grew very straight and it was very light. Now, to us, it seems a bit primitive, doesn't it? So you've been measuring something with a fix and you go like this and like that and like that. And, and it looks a little bit, looks a little bit uh, primitive for us. Well, let me ask you a question. How long is a metre? 100 centimetres, right? Don't, don't, don't ruin it for me, right? How do you know that the ruler metre that you have is exactly a metre? How do you know that that metre is the same size as the metre that they use in France and Italy and, and all the different countries around the world. How do you know? How does the, the, the company that makes those rulers know how long a metre is? Have you wondered that? They have a standard, exactly. You're an engineer, are you? <laughs> they have a standard. And the reason they have a standard, and there's, there's something called a metre, Okay, is that in the 1870s, um, in the light of you know the modernism and all the precision that, that people were having to uh, to to uh, to use in order to build things, a series of international conferences took place on the new metric standards. You see, in the in 1870s, they decided to to Europe decided to move across to a metric standard, which was meters, kilograms, and things like that. So weights and measures. 
And the Meta Convention was, was made in 1875. And do you know how they determined what an exact metre was going to be? What they did is they created something called the Standard Bar. And that Standard Bar was a bar made, a, 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 a bar made, a metallic bar made of 90% platinum, 10% iridium, and is kept at the exact temperature of the melting point of ice. And they keep, and they keep this thing, they've still got it. If you want to go and find out exactly how long a metre is, you can go to France. It's kept in a special place, right, at a specific temperature, nicely wrapped up and, and protected because it's the standard they've used around the world since 1870s. So when someone wants to find out if I've got the right measurement for a metre, they, they take their read, they take their measurement to that place, they compare it against that at the right temperature, and they say, all right, bring this back to our, to our lab or to, our, to our, our guys and make replications of that specific length. That's how we know how long a metre is. Now, they've come up with other... They've come up with other more fancy ways of measuring the exact metre in the 1980s, mind you. So that, that's, that standard lasted for over 100 years. In the 1980s, they came up with, a, with another way of measuring using the wavelengths of light and things like that. But they still have that rod over there. And they still have an exact kilogram as well, using the same thing, using the same sort of system. So there is, if you want to know exactly how long a metre is, there is a bar you can go and see, visit in France at the, at the International Weights and Measurements uh, place, okay? Now, so how much have we progressed anyway? There is a bar in France that they use to measure how long a metre is. Now, John is, is, given a, is given a read with an exact measurement and he's asked to measure how long the temple is. And he's asked to measure the temple, the altar, and everyone worshipping there. All right. Now, there are probably priests worshipping at that specific place. So he's probably asked to not measure them because I don't think he's going he's gonna to measure them up for a suit. He's probably going to count the number of people that are in there and he's going to measure the actual altar and measure the, the circumference of the, the temple itself. Now, there are only two mentions or two visions mentioned in the Old Testament where something was measured in that fashion. There was a complete measuring of the temple with all its holy ordinances in Ezekiel. Okay, and we, we, uh, I think we read a, a verse from that. Which was designed to cause the Israelites to make a separation between the holy and the unholy. That was the purpose of that specific measurement. And then there is a measurement in Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, a measuring of Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We're not going to read all these, all these passages, but I want you to understand that the measurement of the temple was designed to separate the holy from the unholy, so they understood that. And then the measuring of Jerusalem was designed to show that God would preserve and protect his people in that boundary. See, when God, when he was, when the prophets were asked to measure those boundaries God was saying that's mine I'm going to protect whatever's in there and this is the same sort of thing that, that's occurring over here the measuring of the temple in Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 to 2 was to separate his people to say I'm going to protect this, this group of people 
and I'm going to protect this place. It's mine. This was God's space. And he would protect it from the world, from the Gentiles who would seek to destroy it. Notice how he says the outer court has been given to the Gentiles, but not the inner court. The inner court would be protected. And it wasn't. The inner, the inner court, the inner uh, the temple, was not, not going to be allowed to be trampled down. And it could very well be, if we look at these, these first three verses, it could very well be that the two witnesses are the ones who, who do the protecting. Because they have a whole lot of special things they can do. Fire comes out of their mouth. They can call down plagues. They can call any type of thing down. They can cause it to rain, not to rain. So it's possible. It's possible here, and this is only my thought, that God says at this particular point, this space is mine now. It's not going to be infiltrated. And the two witnesses are put there to protect it and make sure that it's not infiltrated. It's also interesting to note that in the next two chapters, Revelation speaks about the devil and his desire to destroy Israel, and then the rise of the beast and the second beast, or the Antichrist, who performs all these miracles to fool the world, possibly in direct opposition to the miracles that the two witnesses are performing as well. So Revelation chapter 11 verse 2 says, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. And the reason that John isn't to measure it is because it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. While God has direct protection and ownership over the temple, he has left the outside court to be trodden down. And the city itself. It's been given over to the nations. The very thing, or the place, that the nations were, it was given for the nations to honour God, God has allowed them to actually trample it down. God has, by his sovereign choice, allowed the outer court, reserved for the Gentiles, to be dishonoured by the Gentiles. And then it says, The holy city shall they tread underfoot, Forty and two months. What does it mean to tread underfoot? It literally means to mistreat or abuse. They abused and they mistreated the holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem. Forty and two months. How long is forty and two months? It's three and a half years. Exactly. So for three and a half years... The Gentiles are allowed to trample down the city of Jerusalem and the outer court of the temple. And this numerically is matched in Daniel. You see, Daniel was written a long time before Revelation. And Daniel predicted a future period of human history, which he described in a few different ways. A time and times and half a time, three and a half years. A half a week, three and a half years and 1,290 days. So he made those three types of references to the same period. And we find the same thing happening in Revelation. Revelation also makes mention of 1,260 days, time and times and half a time in Revelation 12, 14, and 42 months. 
So there's a connection, a very close connection between Revelation and the book of Daniel. Daniel also predicts that a beast from the sea would arise and persecute the people of God for a time and times and half a time. So the Antichrist will rise up at the middle. Remember that he makes a covenant with them at the beginning of the seven years and everything seems peaceful for those first three and a half years and then halfway through he changes his mind and starts to persecute God's people. And for those last three and a half years that's what the Bible calls a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another word for Israel or reference to Israel. Turn to Luke chapter 21 verse 20. How is it that Jerusalem suffers abuse by the nations for 42 months? Luke chapter 21 verse 20 says, and this is a a direct reference from Jesus. Jesus says, and when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, which means surrounded with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, which means its destruction is very close. That happened in AD 70. But it's going to again happen in this particular time, when, when Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the Gentiles. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. They were trodden down from, from the AD 70. Trodden, Jerusalem was completely trodden down. They've been dispersed into all the world, and now they've, they've gone back to Jerusalem. And the time of the Gentiles finishes at the beginning of the tribulation period. And God starts with Israel again. The final three and a half years of the tribulation period is the worst time in history of man. Not only for the Jews, but for all of mankind. It's when God pulls out the majority of his wrath upon the world it's during this period that the ultimate act of abuse on Jerusalem occurs as well let's look at the two witnesses look at Revelation chapter 11 verse 3 we're only going to introduce these, uh, these two witnesses today there's, there's a lot of information that we could be talking about but it would be taking too long the Revelation chapter 11 verse 3 says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now notice how it says in verse 3, And I will give power. Who's talking then? That's God. God himself is speaking from heaven here to John, and he says, I will give power to my two witnesses. God is going to empower two special people who will prophesy for that three and a half year period. Right? That's the exact same time. Now, who are these two people? 
there are so many theories about who they are and, and, and what they are. I'm going to give you the theories today, and then at the end of it, I'm going to say, this is what I think, but I'm not going to say this is doctrine, okay? Because no one really knows for sure who they are, but there are some pointers that may give us an indication, okay? Now, by far the most popular choice for those two witnesses is Elijah and Enoch, okay? Now, they're the, they're the two most popular. And the reason that they're the most popular is that they're the, the only two in the Old Testament that didn't die at the end. They didn't die. Enoch disappeared and Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. Turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. We'll just have a look and see what the Bible says about Enoch's life. Genesis, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked, walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And look at verse 24. And Enoch walked with God. He repeats it again. And he was not. For God took him. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He walked with God and then he was not. Because God took him. Now turn to 2 Kings. Actually, don't need to turn to 2 Kings. I'll read it out for you. Okay? This is the, this is the, uh, the account of how Elijah uh, was taken. And it came to pass, as they still went on, Elijah was, was, uh, was walking along with Elisha and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. So it came in the middle and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. That was the last that was seen of Elijah. <laughs> he was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. So these are the two that are probably the most popular. What people, are, what the theologians or Bible scholars say is that these two are going to, because they didn't die, God's going to bring them back for that specific purpose, for them to be those two witnesses in the end. Okay? Many believe that they're called back for that specific purpose. The other reasons are that they were both prophets, in a sense. I'm not sure about Enoch, but Elijah was definitely a prophet. And that scripture prophesies that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord, or the second coming of Jesus. There's a specific prophecy given. Now, there's another candidate for this who is who's quite popular too, and that's Moses. Okay? And, and he's always linked with Elijah too. So the common ones are either Elijah and, and uh, Enoch or Elijah and Moses. And there's a few reasons for, um, for that. Turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. We'll have a look at, at one of the main reasons that people link Moses and Elijah with these two witnesses. Matthew chapter 17 verse 1. Now, 
James, Peter and John have been taken up to a mount, up to a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. He's, he's glowing in front of them. Verse 1 says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment, or his clothes, were white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them, who? Moses and Elijah with him. So Jesus is there transfigured, shining like the sun, and with him are Moses and Elijah. So that's, there's a connection there between Moses and Elijah for whatever, for whatever reason. We don't know it, why Moses and Elijah showed themselves particularly at that time. The other main reasons is that the other main reason that people put is that if it's Moses and Elijah, it represents, and these are two witnesses, it represents both the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And the, have you ever heard the phrase the law and the prophets? Turn to Romans chapter three, verse twenty. Well, I'll just have a look at one of those instances. Because if you look at the term the law and the prophets, it's mentioned a number of times in the New Testament especially. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, this is a very familiar verse to most of us, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is a knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the witness is by the law and the prophets. So some people make the connection with Moses and Elijah as representing the law and the prophets being the witness on this earth during that time. Now, there's another really interesting thing that we can look at here, which is, refers to, to Moses as well. There's a really interesting verse in Jude. Turn to Jude chapter 1 verse 9. This is the only time that this particular thing is, is, um, is mentioned in the whole of the Bible, or this sort of thing happening. Jude chapter 1 verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now hang on a sec. What's Michael the archangel disputing with Satan about the body, the body of Moses for? Why is there a dispute happening? Why are they fighting over this body? For some special reason, there's a dispute that happens over this body of Moses between Michael and Satan. We don't know why. We don't know why. We can speculate as to why, but we don't know why there was a, this, this dispute happening. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. No one else in the Bible has, has a dispute over them, over their body once, once they've died.
But some believe that there's, there's, there's a dispute because God wanted to reuse the body of Moses. Turn, to, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1 for a sec. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1. We're going to look at how Moses died. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1. Fourth book of the Bible. And Moses, Deuteronomy 34, 1 says, And Moses, this is how Moses died, okay? And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, unto the utmost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulchre until this day. And Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. I find it difficult to read that passage. Every time I read that passage, I find it difficult. Because when you understand everything that Moses went through, when you understand the trials they went through with a difficult people, and the fact that he was, that he was used of God to free and redeem his people from bondage in, Israel, in, Israel, in, uh, in Egypt and to bring them through the wilderness for all that time and then only to at, at the end, instead of being allowed to walk into the promised land, only to be able to see it from a mountain and then God says, no, you're going to die here before you go in. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? That he wasn't allowed to go in with his own people. Now, there was a reason for it because he disobeyed God at a particular time. But still, Moses is probably one of the most central, key figures in the Old Testament, in the whole of the Bible. And he's the one who, who is shown in the transfiguration of Christ as well. But there's some interesting questions that come up from this passage. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you these questions. Who was with Moses when he died? Sorry? God was. No people. God was with Moses when he died. Let me ask another question. Who buried him? God did. God buried Moses. Not the people. God buried Moses. And it says that in verse, verse 6, And he buried him in the valley 
in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulchre until this day. No man knew where Moses was buried. God buried him himself. Now, let me ask another question. How, how frail was Moses when he died? He wasn't. It says, look at verse 7. He was 120 years old when he died. And it says his eye was not dim. And it says that his natural, and, and nor his natural force. So this, this fellow was 120 years old. He could see as well as, as well as any of us. Because God was able to show him all those lands. To be able to see all those lands from the top of that mountain, he must have had fairly good eyesight. And it says that his natural force, his strength, was not diminished at 120 years old. So what did he die of? The Bible simply says that he died by the word of the Lord. The Lord says, now is your time to die. I find that strange, don't you? I find it strange that God says, you're going to die at this particular place and this particular way, with no, no natural way to actually, to actually die. He wasn't killed. It doesn't say he had a heart attack. It doesn't say, it just says he died and then God buried him somewhere where no one else knows. And he was in perfect health by the looks of it. So, next thing we find out about Moses is that he appears with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Possibly Moses spending all that time in God's presence maybe made him very fit or, or kept him naturally young or kept, kept his force unabated or kept his force strong and his eyesight good. Remember he was 40 days on that mountain with God and he came down. How, how was he looking when he came down from that mountain? He was glowing, literally. They were scared of him when he came down off that mountain. could be that Moses is that one. I would probably tend for Moses and Elijah rather than, rather than uh, Elijah and, uh, and Enoch. I've read some commentators say that it, it's, it, it wouldn't be right or God would not bring back people from the dead like, uh, like Elijah and Moses only to have them killed. Because it says in the next few verses that they are killed after their three and a half years. They are killed, left lying in the streets for three and a half days. And some commentators said, God wouldn't do that. But I, just, I wonder whether God wouldn't do that. Whether God wouldn't allow Moses to die twice. Because then you'd have to ask ourselves the question, was Jesus doing Lazarus a favour when he rose him back from the grave again? Lazarus had died once, right? If Jesus rose him from the grave, which he did, what was going to happen to Lazarus again? He'd have to experience death twice. So was Jesus doing Lazarus a disservice by raising him up from the dead again? I don't see any problem with God raising people like Elijah or, or Enoch or whoever for his purposes. But I want you to be clear that I'm not saying this is exactly the way it's going to be because I don't know. I know that there are certain specific things. All we do know about these two people is that they're going to be faithful to God. They are going to be witnesses to this world and they are going to do things that a lot of other people have never been able to do. The other, the other reason that people, that people use 
for the, the link between Moses and Elijah? Is it a type of miracles these, these fellows do? Uh, matches a lot of what Moses and Elijah did with plagues and, and things like that and, uh, and not allowing it to rain. Okay, so to say the truth, I don't know. It's interesting to talk about, um, but we can't say specifically that this is exactly who these two are going to be at this particular point. I want to finish up with, uh, with a note on Elijah and his ministry. Turn to, to Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 4.1, the last chapter, the last book. It says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the store, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great day and great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Did you notice who's, who, which names were mentioned in that passage? Before the, the, the fearful and, and dreadful day of the Lord, he mentions Moses and Elijah. He mentions Elijah specifically as coming back, but for some reason he mentions Moses as well. Maybe another indication. These two uh, fellows, whoever they are, are going to come back clothed in sackcloth, and it says, and, and sackcloth was typically used either when you were repenting, okay, when you were sorry for your sin, you'd clothe yourself in sackcloth to show your remorse, or as a, during a time of mourning, when you lost someone, or during a time of great sadness. So these two are going to be wearing garments that represent repentance or mourning. They're going to preach or prophesy for three and a half years without being able to be touched by anyone. Let me ask you a question about this last passage. What's the mood of it? Is, what's the mood of this last passage? The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and it says that the wicked are going to be destroyed. It says, but you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as cars of the stall. That's a lot of optimism in that, in that passage, isn't it? It's, it's, an op it's, it's a passage of hope, optimism, of strength and confidence before that great day. Actually, a terrible day 
It's a great day and a terrible day. Great for some, terrible for others. God will restore the earth. Jesus will return and conquer the kingdoms of this world and he will rule this world. But for many, it will be a time of complete, terrible destruction. For those who have put their faith in Christ, it will be a time of great optimism and great confidence and, uh, and, and strength. But for the, for the ones who have opposed him, who have rejected him, it will be a time of destruction. Where will this earth be? Where will the individuals be during this time? Where will our families be? Our friends be? If we aren't here during that time, where will they be? Will they be looking forward? Will they be saved during that time so they're looking forward to the return of Christ? Or will they be, will they be in fear? We've learned today that if God sets his boundary, that no one can touch it. If God has said, I'm going to use these two people for this specific purpose, no one can touch them. If God wants to bring back someone from the dead to use them, God can. If God wants to do whatever he wants, he is sovereign over this world. The question is whether a person accepts that sovereignty or whether he doesn't. If you accept that God is indeed king, that God is the ruler of this world, then you have nothing to fear because the Bible then says that you are under his care, that you are under his protection. He is watching out for you and he will secure your destiny so that in the end you have nothing to fear. But if you reject the king, the question is, what will be your destiny? And the Bible says very clearly what that destiny will be. It will be an eternity in hell. The question for us is, what sort of witnesses are we during this time? These two witnesses will be specially chosen to witness to the people of this world during the tribulation do we understand that we have been specially chosen to be the ambassadors of God in this world? There will be families and friends of ours who will go through this difficult time, this terrible time. What have we done, one way or the other? Have we spoken to our friends? Have we warned our families? Have we claimed... God for ourselves you see God has claimed this or will claim this world for himself there's going to come a time when, when Jesus returns that God will say that's enough, enough of the devil's uh, uh, of his antics and his rampaging and his deception and the fact that he's, he's, he's the God of this world God's going to say enough is enough I'm going to claim this back this is going to be completely mine, I'm going to be in control of everything now God can make a claim over this world. God can make a claim over you and me now. But he won't claim you and me unless we claim him. God allows us the freedom to be able to say, God, I claim you as my king. 
The question is, has, who have you claimed today? Have you claimed Christ to be your king today? And if you have, have you, are you a witness for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time. We ask that you now bless us as we spend some time in fellowship and we go back to our homes. Lord, watch over us during this, uh, this, this, uh, this weather, Lord, that we may not be hurt, Lord. And Lord, use us for your protection, for your, uh, for your glory, Lord. I pray that you use us to be able to be the witnesses that you want us to be, that we are moulded into the image of your Son and that we boldly share and proclaim your gospel in this world. Help us to redeem the time for the days of evil. And Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brother Don, would you come and share the last one this, please?